All right, it'd be a blessing if you would open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Navigate on your electronic device, however you want to follow uh, along with the scripture. We're in Revelation chapter 12, looking at verses 1 through 6. If you haven't been here before, we are studying through the book of the Revelation, uh, verse by verse, and we find ourselves in this uh, interesting chapter. The topic, John sees a sign illustrating God restraining Satan from preventing the birth of Jesus. The title of our message, How to Restrain Your Dragon. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, what a glorious day it is, a day that you've given us life and health to a certain measure. It's a day when we've decided to be here and uh, in your presence, Lord, primarily, but in uh, the presence of other believers in the body of Christ. Uh, Today, we are your particular building. You are knitting us together. You are uh, uh, taking us as living stones and putting us here, Lord, in this particular congregation so that we can be ministered to and minister to you and to others. And I pray, Lord, that in this word, though it's about these odd events in the future, uh, many of which do not directly uh, concern the church, nevertheless, if nothing else, Lord, we would see your love and grace and power, uh, your strength, Lord, uh, and know that uh, you will keep us safe during this hour of wrath because you love us, and that you will bring your wrath because you love those who dwell on the earth, seeking one last uh, measure of faith, Lord, to bring them into the kingdom. And so help us, Lord, be our teacher, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. The most recognizable brand logo in the United States is what? What do you think? Shout it out. Well, Coke... Uh, that's it's they spelled their name so I mean you should be able to recognize that 2,000 Americans who were asked chose the Apple icon little fact toyed about the Apple icon the reason it has a bite out of it uh, the artist this is what the artist said so this is what he said he said that when you take the original one was just an apple but when you shrank it down smaller and smaller to use in certain uh, things it looked like a cherry And so he thought the only way to make it distinct is to take a bite out of it. And uh, that is uh, the most recognizable icon in the United States, or at least among these 2,000 Americans uh, who live in Riverdale. Uh, (laughs) Company logos are expensive and valuable. Symantec paid $1.2 million for a stylized check mark in a circle. Symantec is the company that brought you Norton Antivirus. I'm sure you were drawn to it by that stylized check mark. The Nike swoosh is worth $67 billion. The logo, not the company. The genuinely great logos are symbols without words. Besides the apple and the swoosh, the golden arches and the two-tailed mermaid round out the top four. Our text in the Revelation presents a spectacular sign. Let me read the first four verses to you. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. 
Anyone familiar with the book of Genesis knows immediately what this image illustrates. If you don't see it, that's okay. You will see it a few minutes into our study. The spectacular sign is a kind of logo for Satan's constant interference with God's plan of salvation throughout human history. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, Jesus came through Israel as your savior, despite Satan's continual interference. And number two, Jesus comes to Israel as your sovereign, despite Satan's continuing interference. Let's take a look in verses one through five at his past interference. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve defied God's one undemanding request. Choosing self and Satan over God, they plunged creatures and creation into chaos. Our merciful God, without hesitation, disclosed his plan to redeem creatures and to restore creation. He said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise, literally crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Scholars call this statement the proto-evangelium. I love that word for some reason. Just rolls off the tongue. Proto-evangelium. I'll probably say it a lot of times. Just, it, it just, I don't know, you know, some words. It means the first good news. It's the first presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible Knowledge Commentary describes it this way. God said there would be a perpetual struggle between satanic forces and mankind. It would be between Satan and the woman and their respective offspring or seeds. The offspring of the woman was Cain, then all humanity at large, and then Jesus Christ and those collectively in him. The offspring of the serpent includes demons and anyone serving his kingdom of darkness, those whose father is the devil. Satan would cripple mankind, you shall bruise his heel, but the seed, Jesus, would deliver a fatal blow to him. He will crush your head. Another commentary, uh, commentary rather said, as the acorn contains the mighty oak, so these words contain the entire plan of salvation. English preacher Charles Simeon went even further, calling this verse the sum and summary of the entire Bible. That's, that's big stuff. Uh, it's not something to pass over lightly. This great sign conveys the proto-evangelium and its effect on the entire history of the world. And so verse one, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, on her head a garland of 12 stars. The purpose of a sign is to clarify, not confuse. The signs in the revelation reveal they don't conceal. The signs are defined for us either in the book itself or elsewhere in the Bible. We're going to see an example of that in verse nine. And so there's, a, there's an immediate uh, um, disrespect for the book of the Revelation by people, Christian and non-Christian, who say that they stay away from it because it's full of signs and symbols that you can't understand. That would be like saying you don't want to drive anywhere because it's full of signs and symbols that you won't understand. Merge? Oh, oh my gosh. There's an arrow going into the street. Oh, I just ran somebody over because I didn't see them walking across the tree. You know, I, nobody says, hey, I'll, I, I can't drive because there's a, it's all signs. I, I need somebody to tell me what it is. And so you understand, I, I make fun of this because a lot of people won't even read the book of the Revelation because of the signs. 
And a sign is to make things clear. Now, we don't know everything. Uh, you know, we're, we're not, I'm not saying that we know everything there is to know about the revelation or that we're right about everything. But it's, it's, it's an easy read, really, if you look for the signs defined. We'll see that in a minute, like I said. Our attention is drawn to a woman with a dragon antagonist. If you've ever read the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, you've been introduced to this woman. Joseph said, look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And so the sun and the moon are Joseph's parents, Jacob and Rachel. The 11 stars are his 11 brothers, the patriarchs of the 11 tribes of Israel. And Joseph is the 12th star. The woman clothed with the sun, the moon and the 12 stars is national Israel. Nothing could be clearer. Verse two, then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. The seed God introduced in the garden of Eden is the child born to national Israel in verse two. As the Bible narrative progresses through history, God continually narrows down the lineage of the promised seed. He would be born through Noah's son Shem by a descendant of Abraham coming from the tribe of Judah. He would be in the line of David. He would be Jesus. Jesus is the only person in the universe who fulfills all of the lineage and requirements that you read about in the Old Testament. Some of you, a lot of you like to do the Ancestry.com stuff, right? And get on there and you find out hopefully good things about your ancestry. Hopefully. I know some people who found out things that they wish they didn't know, so I'm staying away from it. All the lies that my parents told me, they're, I'm good with it, you know, and stuff. So I'm, I'm too old now to know my real history. Uh, and so whatever history I, I've made up, that's my history. But... Uh, uh, it's, you know, you're narrowing it down until, yeah, this is the person, and I've identified it. God does that with Jesus. It starts in a big way, the seed of the woman. And then, you know, through here, through here, through here, through here, till it could only be Jesus, proving to the Jews that he was, in fact, and is their Messiah. The woman is not a reference to Mary. Yes, she gave birth to Jesus. Notwithstanding that, if you drop down to verse 11, you're going to read, the rest of her offspring flee from Satan during the great tribulation. This woman illustrates national Israel, not a particular Jewish mom like Mary, because she still gives birth to those in the great tribulation. They are descended through her. Her labor and pain in childbirth is an understatement of the continuous persecution against Jews throughout history. Enter the dragon. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. No need to guess at the identity of the dragon. In verse 9, we read, The great dragon, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan. In chapter 20, we will read, The dragon, that serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. Who do you think the dragon is? The devil and Satan. He cannot be anybody else but the devil and Satan. Not only does Revelation define this, it does it twice over. And so if you're reading a commentary or listening to somebody, they say, well, you know, this dragon could be the world this and, you know, this. Just leave. Leave quietly. You don't have to make a scene, but just leave. The dragon is Satan. He is great 
because he has authority over hordes of malevolent supernatural beings and has been granted limited rule over the earth. He's fiery. The word is pyro in the original language. So he's one of the X-Men. Fire-breathing dragons most certainly existed at one time. If you want to research this farther, go to the Answers in Genesis website and look up dragons. The Leviathan spoken of in the book of Job is obviously a sea serpent, maybe like Cecil the sea sick sea serpent, but i just trying to see how old some of you were. Anybody know what that's a reference to? Cecil the sea sick sea serpent? That's great. Beanie head. I used to have a little Cecil beanie. It shot that thing up in the air. I had all the cool toys when I was a kid. Kids don't have cool toys anymore. I had the topper Johnny 7. It was seven different guns in one. I could kill you seven different ways, but... Grenades, cannons, I had it all. Now, you know, anyway. So, fire-breathing dragons, they were dinosaurs. They're dinosaurs. People say they didn't exist because they don't believe dinosaurs and humans existed at the same time because of this millions of years of evolution stuff. Uh, But there were dragons. Regardless of that, uh, rabbit trail. Satan is similar to a fire-breathing dragon in terms of the destructive lies that he spews out of his mouth. Nothing destroys like the lies of Satan. We've been in the Garden of Eden already this morning, right? It was the devil's lie that really, uh, you know, put the thing on this. He told them they could be like God. And look at what our world is now. Red denotes bloodlust. He was a murderer from the beginning, John tells us, and he continues to kill and to harm. Don't look to the Rolling Stones for your theology, but when Mick Jagger sings Symphony for the Devil, he recognizes the truth that Satan has been at work behind history to rob and to kill and to destroy. Now, the heads and horns and diadems will be explained fully in chapter 17. I'll give you a preview. The seven heads with seven diadems are seven successive kingdoms in biblical history that persecute Israel. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome are past. In a future kingdom with ties to the Roman Empire, the Antichrist will arise during the Great Tribulation. The ten horns elaborate on the seventh future kingdom of the Antichrist. The prophet Daniel wrote, The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this final kingdom, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from them and shall subdue three of them. The one who rises from this kingdom and subdues them is the Antichrist. And so history's logo is meant to contain this series of world kingdoms that persecuted and will persecute national Israel. It brings a lot of the Old Testament together all at once. Company logos often contain additional information, hidden information, if you look closely. Who can tell me what is hidden in the FedEx logo between the E and the X? An arrow. You don't see it at first, but you can look for it, and it's there to uh, signify their speedy delivery, shot like an arrow. How about the Tostitos logo? Anybody know what the Tostitos logo has on it? I'll tell you. Some of you know. But if you look at it later, not now, (laughs) the dot over the I is a bowl of salsa, the two T's are people, and the yellow triangle in between them is a chip. It represents people coming together to share a tasty snack. People were coming up to me in between services and showing, look at this. Baskin Robbins has an interesting logo too. You don't notice it at first, but the colored logo, 
if you look at it, the 31 comes into focus. And so in the B and the R. And, and so you know what? Um, hey, I'd pay a million dollars for some of these logos, uh, especially Tostitos. On the other hand, I never noticed it before, so who knows? The great sign of the revelation is complex, but it's simple to understand. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Stars is a designation used in the Bible for angels. In the book of Job, we read of a time when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Sons of God is a reference to angels and stars and sons of God is a parallelism in which they mean the same thing. And so uh, Satan drawing a third of the stars of heaven is where we get the idea that a third of the created angels joined him in his rebellion against God. I'm aware that it's popular today to claim that this verse is not enough to prove that a third of the angels fell with the devil, but it is. In verse 9, we're going to read that Satan was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And so logically, grammatically, contextually, that's what it's saying. There are many biblical examples of the dragon seeking to devour the child. Cain's murder of Abel in Genesis 4. First John tells us that Cain was of the wicked one and slew his brother. And so when Cain killed Abel, Satan was attempting to exterminate the line through which the Savior would be born. Uh, because he had just heard the Proto-Evangelium himself, and he said, well, uh, why don't I just stop the Savior from being born, and I can do that by inciting Cain to murder his brother. The marriages of fallen angels with human females leading to the birth of Nephilim giants in Genesis chapter 6 was a strategy to interfere with the birth of the Messiah. These unions were corrupting human DNA to destroy humanity came close to success in that only eight souls entered the ark in which to repopulate. Pharaoh's order to murder the male children in Egypt, the attempted murders of David by King Saul and others. Queen Athaliah in the Bible in 2 Chronicles attempted to destroy the royal seed. Haman attempted to slaughter the Jews recorded in the book of Esther. And in the New Testament, King Herod's order to murder the male children of Bethlehem. And so this is a constant theme running through the Bible, the devil seeking to devour the child. Anti-Semitism is prevalent in history after the completion of the Bible. You know that, but let me give you just three examples. The Crusader army swept through Jewish communities, looting, raping, and massacring Jews as they went. Thus was born what historians call a pogrom, the organized massacre of a targeted group of people. In the middle of the 14th century, Jews were accused of spreading the bubonic plague. In Germany and Austria, it is estimated that 100,000 Jews were burned alive. Martin Luther wrote a pamphlet in 1545 entitled The Jews and Their Lies, claimed that the Jews thirsted for Christian blood and he urged that they be killed. The Nazis reprinted it in 1935. Let me just say this. You don't want Nazis reprinting your material bad for the resume. They might even ban you from Twitter. I don't know, you, you know, but they could. The decisive uh, interference was the murder of Jesus on the cross, or was it? Little did Satan understand that the cross was the instrument that would crush his head, or if he did, there was nothing he could do about it. Verse five, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. 
The rod of iron belongs to the promised Messiah. Psalm 2 verse 9 says of this person, you shall break them, the rebellious nations, with a rod of iron. So if you're a Jew especially, and somebody is described as having the rod of iron, you know that this is the person from Psalm 2 who is the Messiah, your uh, Savior. Jesus is the male child, the promised seed of the woman. The heavenly sign contains his life and ministry, his death and resurrection, when it shows him being caught up to heaven and to his throne. In other words, because he successfully ascends into heaven, it means that everything that came before in his life was approved by God. He completed his mission. And so the ascension includes his entire ministry. It's a logo with some motion. Remember those dot drawings that you stare at until an image comes into focus? It just gives it some kind of dimension. This is a logo like that where it just, it has a deeper and deeper dimension. Some, you know, there's some people who couldn't see that. I I don't think it's an IQ thing, although I, never mind. My parents used to tell me if I was cross-eyed for too long, my eyes would stay crossed. It's like number 25 on a list of the lies that I was told as a child. But anyway, like go play on the freeway. Of late, there's been an attempt to include the church in this catching up. It's true that the word for caught up is harpazo, from which we get rapture. That observation is not significant. The Bible uses harpazo to describe the snatching away of Philip after dealing with the Ethiopian eunuch. The Bible uses harpazo to describe the catching up of the Apostle Paul to heaven. The great sign is about national Israel. You know, it's a crack up for those of you who uh, study these things. Dispensationalists like ourselves uh, like to say that after, you know, chapter 3, or maybe the beginning of chapter 4, the church is not in the book of the Revelation until we return with Jesus. But then they turn right around and say, but we, this might be the rapture of the church, which it's not. Uh, and we also, dispensationalists, like to say that you need to always keep Israel and the church separate as two entities that God is dealing with uh, in different ways. Uh, but here, uh, you know, it seems like he's dealing with both Israel and the church at the same time. And so this great sign is about Israel. And you remember that the great tribulation, though it involves the inhabitants of the earth, the church is taken away through the resurrection and rapture, and then God turns his attention to the earth. He was reaching out to Gentiles as well, but it is called the time of Jacob's trouble. And it is specifically God dealing again with national Israel to bring them to salvation and, uh, and fulfill his wonderful, unconditional promises to them. I've told you the story before uh, of my Taekwondo days. Uh, I know. You can go ahead, laugh. Laugh all you want. A Korean champion, Master Pak Bukwan, visited our dojo. He was the sensei for our sensei. And uh, he visited the United States. I had the privilege to spar with him, or at least I thought it was a privilege at first. I couldn't touch him. No matter what I did on offense, he stood there looking at me like this. I felt like I was in The Karate Kid, although I don't think that was a movie. I mean, nothing. Kicks. I mean, there's nothing I could have done. I almost wanted to pull out a gun, but I thought, you know. (laughs) But then the worst part of it, the worst part of it was then... At one point, it transitioned into him on offense. And it was very, still standing there, but he said to me, Saida kick. 
And I was like, whoa, where did that come from? He literally told me what he was going to do and then did it. So then I got back in my stance and he said, spinning back kick. And then he did it. And then, and he went through a whole litany of things until I cried uncle. Now he didn't hurt me. I mean, and he wasn't trying to embarrass me. I mean, it's just, you know, it did hurt me and embarrass me, but uh, he wasn't trying to. And why do I bring that up? Satan knows what God is doing, but God's told him. He says, seed of the woman. Descendant of Abraham in King David line. And this devil is like all over that and he can't do anything about it. He comes really, really close a few times and the Lord through his providence just works it all out. The devil's not stupid. He's just defeated. He he just is no match for what is happening in the spiritual realm. His days are numbered. And when we get to the great tribulation, his days are really numbered. Now, second verse six, uh, despite Satan's continuing interference, Jesus will come to Israel. Don't admit if you watch Fail Army on YouTube, it's a channel that purports to be the world's number one source for epic fail videos. Uh, a current one that's up high on the list, this guy is trying to back out a huge riding lawnmower out of his pickup truck and he's got the two ramps and the, the thing immediately goes off the ramps and falls back, flips over and falls back and crushes him. And everybody's laughing and the guy said, oh, you know, Ted, I don't know, he could be dead for all I know. Then they cut the video off, but it's all that kind of stuff on hidden cameras. A lot of it, I'd say 75% of it is skateboard accidents. Uh, man, you, it, what a wipeout, man, it, it's crazy. So fail army, forget I told you about it. Satan is the undisputed leader of the most epic fail army of all time. Despite his strength and strategies in the 4,000 or so years from Adam until the first coming of our Lord, he and his army had one job. They failed to accomplish their primary objective. And so verse six, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Review is more necessary in the book of the Revelation than in any other book of the Bible. Not because it's too difficult, but because it, uh, has, there is a lot of detail. And so let me be brief in this review. Jesus took a scroll from his father and began to open seven seals on it one at a time. Opening the first five seals revealed things to happen on earth during the first 1,260 days of the Great Tribulation. The sixth seal was a preview of things to come with the opening of the seventh seal. The opening of the seventh seal revealed seven angels with seven trumpets. The blowing of the first six trumpets revealed things to happen on earth during the final 1,260 days of the Great Tribulation. The blowing of the seventh trumpet prompted the phenomenal proleptic proclamation, the kingdoms of this world has become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Before Jesus returns to reign forever and ever, seven additional angels will pour out upon the inhabitants of earth seven bowls of the wrath of God. When the angel pours out bowl number seven, we read, it is done. And so that's the progression of the great tribulation. One more thing to bear in mind, the great tribulation lasts precisely seven years, but it is divided into two halves that are variously described as either three and a half years, a time, time, and half a time, or 1,260 days. 
Why give you three explanations for the same thing? So you couldn't be confused. So you couldn't say this doesn't mean anything. This only means a long period of time or a short period of time. No, there's three different definitions and they all mean the same thing. God went to so much trouble to explain this to us and so many people won't even crack the cover of this. And he even said, okay, look, I'll bless you if you read this book. I'll special bless you if you do it, please. Even if you don't understand it, read it. And people are just like, hey, Revelation. Well, nobody knows what that's about. The seven years are divided in half by the Antichrist defiling a rebuilt Jewish temple. He goes into it and in some sense demands to be worshiped. Uh, That event is called by the Bible this crazy name, the abomination of desolation. The action in verse 6 occurs during the second half of the Great Tribulation. In what we call the little apocalypse for its brevity while covering the same material, Jesus said in his Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. There seems to be a specific place prepared by God where Jews will be kept safe. The popular guest today is modern Petra, the famous city, uh, the famous rock city in the desert. Petra is located about 60 to 100 miles to the south of Jerusalem in a mountain chain. The site remained unknown to the Western world until Swiss explorer Johann Ludwig Burkhardt discovered it in the early 1800s. There's a story that evangelist W.E. Blackstone spent $8,000 in the 1920s to have copies of the New Testament and gospel tracts placed at Petra so that Jews who flee there will recognize Jesus as their savior in the final hour. I think that's just too cool. Someone will stock Petra or a location like it that is within the geography Jesus mentioned. We're not saying it is Petra. That's a likely candidate, but it could be anywhere within that radius. Uh, And it is for the fact of keeping Jews safe and alive till the end of the Great Tribulation. We'll see some persecution coming in the rest of chapter 12, keeping them alive so that Jesus will be recognized by them in his second coming. I used to think that the S on his chest stood for Superman. In recent years, we've been told uh, that it's the Kryptonian symbol for hope. This great sign, history's logo, is hope on steroids. God will bring his plan to its glorious completion. You take one look at this knowing what we know now, and it, it fills you with the hope of the coming of the Lord. Meanwhile, we suffer and creation groans. It's a problem we often discuss here since it touches each of us, and we believe that it is the primary reason so many non-believers immediately reject God. If there was a God, why so much suffering? That's a very human argument. Have you ever ever thought about that? It's saying, why should I suffer? As if what? As if I'm God? If I were God, I wouldn't have people suffer. Well, then you know what? You wouldn't have created people. And you wouldn't have given them free will. And there wouldn't be human beings. But I want to talk about what, what about God's suffering. 
Nobody ever thinks that God suffers. In the Garden of Eden, while the wound of their willful disobedience was fresh, God promised to come and save us. His plan, really the only possible plan, the proto-evangelium, would cause him suffering on a scale we cannot even begin to gauge. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because they rejected him as their Messiah, thereby refusing his offer of the kingdom. Instead of enjoying blessing, they would be overrun by Rome, have their city and temple destroyed, and be dispersed without a home in hostile nations all over the earth. And Jesus, it evoked emotion in Jesus. He cried, he wept because they had made that decision. If that tragedy evoked tears, how much more does the total suffering of every person ever conceive for whom God desires salvation? God sees what's going on in our world as a result of sin, and he's done something about it, but in the meantime, people continue to suffer, and God suffers too. God determined to save us by the only means possible. He would become a man through the virgin birth, He would be fully God and fully man, the unique God-man, to substitute himself for us in a psychologically and physically vicious crucifixion, abandoned by all but one of his apostles, after having been betrayed by another one of them and denied by another one of them. Jesus knows suffering, and he knows your pain and suffering. I uh, sort of used this example last service, and I want to be careful because I don't want to you know, I know that people have old wounds and, and things that happen in their life, but I think it's a good example. I'll try and be brief. If you're a mom and a dad, did you have a moral discussion about whether to bring children into this world? Knowing what you know about this world, knowing about its diseases and its murders and sex trafficking and rebellion knowing the terrible things that could befall your children or the terrible things that your children could do to others or the fact that some of your children were going to rebel and turn their back on you? Did you think about that? You might have. What did you do? You brought children into the world. You gave it a go. You know why? Because it was worth it. Because there's love. And and love can overcome. It's, it's in our nature, and it's in God's nature. And so when, when people say, you know, why is there suffering, that would be like saying, well, you shouldn't have brought, you, you shouldn't exist. You shouldn't have brought people into the world if you are worried about suffering. Put the message about God on hold for me, but who are you to bring somebody into that kind of a world? If you're going to say there's no God and this world is a crazy, mixed-up world, yeah, I'll bring tons of kids into it so they can be oppressed and, and abused and uh, mistreated. It always comes back to to me, to us, to you. Do you know what I mean? It's not on God. God has done everything he can do. He died for you. He died for me. Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. Amen.